Welcome on in to Empower Talks. This is the podcast where we talk about careers with people across the insurance industry. I'm thrilled to have Nick Kirk with us today and Nick's intro. I mean, it would take quite a long time if I'm honest. Nick is a non-exec director at two different insurance companies at the moment, but also has a very impressive CV of insurance companies that he's um, run and built and sold over his career. I first met Nick at a WCI lunch and we were talking about his career and he just had so many stories, particularly about his relocation, where he's been able to take his career Lots of countries that I know I love traveling to for a couple of weeks. He's actually moved his family to and resettled multiple times. And I know lots of people are really interested in that. So I'm really pleased to have Nick here to talk us through his experience, what he learned from it, and what his suggestions are for people who would like to do an international placement at some point in their career. Welcome, Nick, to in our podcast today. And um, you're an experienced director and non-exec director around quite a few different insurance companies. So we're going to talk through today your journey to date, but also what you're doing at the moment and where you've been doing it, because uh, you've got quite a geographical journey as well as a career ladder journey uh, that we're going to hear about. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Sam. Yes. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So Nick, um, we met fairly recently actually um, through a WCI lunch. We've spoken about WCI on this podcast before as um, a great way of meeting people across the industry and meeting people in very different roles. And as we were sat next to each other, um, the experiences you were coming out with, was, oh, that's an interesting, oh, that's another interesting one. And there's another one. Uh, and it, it was just uh, endless in terms of, insights into the insurance market but also the global market and and actually sort of relocating around those and I think there's a lot in that that listeners will be um, intrigued about and can learn from so um, thanks for coming along to talk to us about it can we start off with a bit of a kind of high level career journey from how you uh, started out in insurance to where you are now yeah sure Um, I, I started off you know, my insurance career or journey uh, when I was 16. Um, I needed a job. I didn't, I confess I didn't really like school very much. I kind of felt I was waiting around for, you know, real life to start and I, and I wanted to get on with it. So I, I, um, I was an office junior in, in the West End of London um, back a long time ago. Uh, and then you know, figured out after a while that if you if you want an interesting life and you want a career, you know, I, I had to go back to night school and um, get into underwriting, which I did. Worked around the UK mainly as um, an under a UK property underwriter. Um, then got into Europe and or a European division for the Sun Alliance at the time, and things began to go wrong in a couple of our European operations, one of which was the Dutch business. Um, And I was dispatched off to Holland to help um, get that back on track. I was meant to be there for 10 months, I think. And 
stayed for six years, so two, three-year contracts in the end. Um, and then from, from Holland, I was transferred to become the uh, general manager for underwriting for Royal and Sun Alliance in Australia, uh, which I did for a whole number of years. And that was an extremely eventful time. Um, and then Royal and Sun Alliance floated their local operation in Australia on the local stock market or sold it, I suppose, at a time when they were looking to raise capital. And shortly after that, I was approached to see whether I wanted to start an insurance company, a new insurance company in, uh, in Australia, which I did. Um, and I started that, ran it for 10 years, and then we sold it. From there, I did a sort of a number of consulting roles in different parts of the industry. Um, I went back to, came back to London for about six months and from there went off to Vietnam for a year uh, to work for the Munich Re Group and then spent about six months in Malaysia before going back to Australia and then coming back to the city about three years ago where I worked in Lloyd's and for the uh, Vibe Syndicate Management and Syndicate Holdings uh, until through to the sale of that business and have since been a, a non-executive for the MGA business of Ardonna and still for Syndicate Holdings Corporation. Brilliant and I mean what I find really interesting is just particularly this this level of relocation but to um, for regions that are so different from each other so I think relocating once um, is something a few people get to do, uh, but quite often that's kind of done and then they go back to wherever they were, um, were from or wherever they continue there. But with, with your journey, you, you kind of, you've done it to very different parts of the world several times. So we'll definitely get into that. If we can go right back to um, your time at Sun Alliance when you were um, offered this opportunity to go over to the Dutch office, uh, what made you, the person that was asked? What do you think had kind of set you up to be um, uh, asked if you wanted to do that opportunity? Yeah, look, I think it's a really good question. And I think it's a kind of recurring theme for me. It was just being the right place at the right time. Um, at the time, I'd only been back at Sun Alliance for about a, a year um, in the European division. I'd been at Prudential before that and then rejoined when Prudential went into runoff for general insurance. And we'd written something called the, um, the Fokker aircraft account in London on behalf of our Dutch business. And there was a big fire in, um, in one of their factories in Holland. And it was a very, very complicated placement. Uh, there was an American lead written out of Holland and then there was a London market placement and all sorts of um, issues that had to be sorted out with the claim so I, I had to get really involved in that claim and therefore spent some time uh, in our Dutch business and at the same time uh, it, it was really you know that point in the market cycle where things were beginning to sort of come home to roost and, and the Dutch business uh, began to deteriorate quite sharply. Um, 
And, and so when I was in Holland, they said, look, you know, go and have a look at the overall account and come up with what you think needs to be done about it, which I did. And it was one of those cases really where you produce a report and they sort of say, well, if you're so smart, you go out and fix it yourself sort of thing and, and, off, and off you go. So the estimate was that it would be about 10 months. Um, and I stayed for six years, as I've said before. So I, I, I had to go off and, and implement what I'd said was a plan to get it back on track. Or that, that element of that business anyway, let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. And then the fact you were there um, for that much longer, was that because it got on track and you were staying or because you, you'd opened up Pandora's box? Um, what was it? A little bit of both in a way. Um, there was a what's called a what they would call a boss account, so a, a co-insurance account um, that I was looking at, and I was looking at that mainly in property. But of course, generally speaking, if one thing goes wrong, it's 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 unusual, not not impossible, but it's unusual. It's the only issue. And in fact, the, the deterioration in that commercial business was kind of the first visible symptom of a whole range of issues that, that they had, both from uh, an expense point of view uh, and from a, um, a loss ratio point of view. And, and so when I went there and, and we, we were lucky, to be honest, and I mean, this is also, um, a real feature of the time that I've spent in insurance. I mean, it, that, there was timing. So by the time I got there and we were starting to fix things, then we weren't the only company in a co-insurance market that was having a tough time. So rates started to go up, um, underwriting appetites started to, um, you know, to be bought back in. And so as we, you know, fixed our own issues, the market fixed a, an awful lot of it for us too. And so it was one of those times where, again, you know, you're just in the right place at the right time. The market starts to harden. So the actions that you put in place, you know, make you look like a genius for six or nine months or a year or something. And, and that was the case with this. But it wasn't the only bit of the business that needed um, revision. So they, they brought in, um, there was a new chief executive who'd come in from the Canadian operation. Um, there was also a guy who was looking after the personal lines business and they brought in a new CFO and, and sort of between us, we, we managed to turn it round, um, reduce the expense, increase the income. And as I say, the market was, was kind to us because it was going up at the time, which, which made it look very successful in a short period of time. And so as a consequence, um, you know, the year was extended to three and at the end of the three year period, we were really beginning to get some momentum. So it was then extended for another three years beyond that. Well, so luck played a, you know, luck played a large part in it or, or movement in the market played a large part yeah. of, of that success. Yeah. I'm, I'm sensing there's, there's quite a lot of maybe um, you put down your career success towards this luck with this phrase right place at the right time a little bit. Um, I like to think of luck as it's when preparation meets opportunity. I feel luck is maybe a little bit humble um, and a bit more credit gets deserved than that. Well, true, but, but I, I, I mean, I agree. You, luck, good fortune, 
puts you in the right place at the right time and then it's down to what you do with it isn't it so so yeah i i accept that but it i was fortunate um i was fortunate to get the opportunity to go there and, and fix it um i was fortunate that in a way that that there were other issues in the company that surfaced shortly afterwards, which gave me a greater opportunity than the one um, that, that I'd gone out, you know, simply to fix. Um, the, the guy that was running the commercial insurance operation in total at the time decided that he'd had enough and it was all too hard. They then had a, you know, that vacancy for the overall commercial insurance director, and I stepped into into that. Um, on a temporary basis and then as I say stayed doing that for the next five years or so so yes it it you get opportunities by good fortune it's then what you do with them I suppose when you get them isn't it so this relocation was is it your first um yeah it was the it was the first overseas relocation yeah yeah and who was relocated at that stage in your life uh, well, it was I, I. It was myself, my wife, and and we had two young children um, who were three and five, I think, at the time. Um, so so we all got a flight from Gatwick, I think it was, to Amsterdam, and moved out to Holland. And was that an easy decision for all of you? Look, yeah. It, it was for me. Um, it's what I wanted to do. It's it's what I'd wanted to do for some time. Even if I hadn't consciously realised it, that it's it was just um, you know the opportunity to get sort of paid to go and live somewhere else just seemed brilliant to me. Um, and maybe it was slightly more difficult. I'm sure it was much more daunting for Tracy, my wife. Um, and it was more difficult for her to adapt and adjust because for me, I, I got up every day and, and went to work and I had this kind of fascinating issue that we were trying to fix, uh, which, which was kind of all consuming. Um, but for her, she, you know, she'd been transplanted into a different country didn't know the language, didn't know how things worked, and, and therefore it was much more difficult for her for the first few months. Um, but in terms of, uh, of the run-up to it, I, I don't think we thought too much about it, particularly as they said, well, you know, go out 10 months or a year. Um, we thought, well, you know, why not? So. Did your kids learn the language? They both, they could both speak reasonable Dutch, but uh, they went to an international school, um, actually a brilliant international school. I mean, it, it really was. And the, the real difficulty in, in learning Dutch properly is that, you know, most Dutch people speak English so well that when you attempt the language, they, they kind of laugh and reply in English. So, it, you know, it made it much more difficult to actually learn it but both both of them had a reasonable standard of Dutch by the time we left yeah brilliant and um you must have enjoyed that experience because of what happened throughout the rest of your career so we've relocated 
family settled, had a challenge, accomplished it. Talk us through the next stage. So what was the kind of next opportunity that came your way? Well, you do, um, at the time anyway, the way that, the way that it was structured is you would do a three year uh, contract. So, so I'd, done, I'd done one three year contract and I was a large part way through the second three years. Um, and there was, we'd merged the Dutch company with the company in Belgium to create something for the Benelux, which, which in itself, by the way, was kind of really interesting because if you, you know, if you want to put two um, cultures together, the Dutch and the Belgians being near neighbors, yeah like a lot of near neighbors that they don't naturally get on if, let's put it that way so, so that had been an, an interesting process which had been sort of dictated from the UK but so that was happening and we also merged in the international program business and Royal Alliance itself was going through some some kind of interesting issues and so for me, as the contract came up, it was, you know, what do I do next? So I go back in, back to the UK. Um, if I'd stayed longer in, the, in Holland, then it probably would have been on a local contract rather than as an expatriate, which was an option. And then I was sent on a, on a management development course in Singapore. And it was, you know, sort of develop uh, leadership skills and what have you that was the and it was kind of a um, like a testing ground if you know what I mean you went through all sorts of different exercises that was that was the thing at the time and as a result of that um, they had some issues in Australia and the new CEO of the of the intermediated business in in Australia went to the management development people and said you know was there anyone on that course that might you know fit a particular profile that he was looking for and again it was chance really i'd been on the course and the guy that was running the course said well what you know why don't you talk to to nick and it was i don't know six months or so before my my contract um would have otherwise needed to be extended or or i would have gone back and so i had a conversation with the um the guy in australia and and he said, well, you know, come out and take a look. And then following that, I was offered the a contract in Australia for three years to be the uh, general manager of underwriting, it was at the time. So that's, that's kind of the mechanics of it. That's, and, and it sounds like you met someone not for a very long period of time and they were able to sort of piece you together with this opportunity. Yeah, it was, it, it was, it was a development programme. And so we'd spent a... We'd spent a week, I think it was, in Singapore going through various different business simulations and leadership role-playing things. And, and as a result of that, the guy that was running that program um, was contacted by the guy in Australia. And that, that was the connection. Uh, yeah. What conversations do you think you had that, that maybe allowed them to consider you as having... Um, an interest in in that move is that something you'd said or did he, do you think he just picked up um no there've been some other there've been some other conversations you know with the with the run up and there was 
there was an option of a job in Singapore. Um, so I, I'd flagged that I was interested in, you know, continuing to work overseas. Um, and I think there'd been, a, there'd been an offer of something in the US too, but that, then there was another restructure and that kind of didn't happen. So I was on that, that program, I suppose, of, of international, um, you know, movement internationally. That was, that was kind of how the connection was made. The reason I um, uh, kind of asked this is I think quite often people get an idea of what they want in their career um, and find it really hard to articulate it and are just nervous to articulate it to sound too um, needy or that they, they don't have realistic expectations or whatever it might be that they kind of talk themselves out of it but they quite often maybe hold back some of their aspirations from people um, and when we look at the way that sort of a lot of these opportunities come about quite often it's there's somebody being said, oh do you know anyone that might be suited to this or here's a project over here that somebody might be interested in and if you haven't expressed what you are interested in or what kind of um, things you're open to then the conversations that you miss you probably never even know and um, so I think what's what's quite nice there is again that another opportunity that you really wanted came to you but because you were transparent there in in saying that that's what you were thinking of doing yeah and I, I think there's there's always been a kind of another aspect I think that you I think if underlying you have a kind of direction of where you want to go, I've always found that if if it's there, um, kind of in the background, then it you know those opportunities seem to come up more. Do, do you know what I mean? So so in other words, if not not as a specific plan that at that date I will do this or I will contact those people, but if there's an area that begins to interest you or or you you know, you believe this is the direction that you want to head in, somehow things around that seem to come up. I don't, I don't know why, but that's, that's always what's happened to, to me. Um, maybe you, you spot those opportunities more readily because it, it's already something in, in your mind when you're, you know, when you're, you're looking forward. I, I think that's probably what it is. Yeah, there's the, um, the, the classic example when you are shopping for a new car. All of a sudden, yeah. there's more of those cars on the road, and of course, yeah. there's no more of those cars on the road. But your mind, your mind has so so many pieces of information like coming towards it every every second that it filters out what it thinks you need. So if you've yeah. spent time to think about you know, what you might be looking for, and then you can hear a conversation, or you notice somebody's got a similar experience, or maybe a connection that could be helpful, then maybe you're more alert to it because you've spent the time thinking about where you want to go. I, th I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. And I, you know, if, if I think back, um, it, if I think right back to the, you know, the beginning of my career and, and even before that, so, so my, you know, some of my earliest memories, were, you know, my, my grandfather was in the Merchant Navy uh, and he was then in the army during the Second War. My father was in the army when he was younger. And, and so family get togethers what you know there was often a discussion about where they'd been and where they traveled to and you know my my grandfather I think his kind of maiden voyage was to New York and he was 14 years old when he did that um and I remember I remember he used to you know be on liners that went also went down to Australia so he was in Perth 
Melbourne and Sydney. And so there would always be that sort of discussion. And I think, you know, to me, that that was in my mind, in my subconscious, that to me that always seemed like a, an interesting and kind of romantic sort of life to, to go and travel. And I think that's why I ended up doing what I, I know, I, I'm sure that's why I ended up doing what I'm doing. You know, when you first start to, to go to work or when I first started to go to work, you, you would get the eight o'clock train into London Bridge or whatever. And, and in those days, you know, you'd kind of see the same people on the train every day. And, and I just thought, I do not want to be one of those people coming home, having made that journey every day you know, every day for the rest of my life. Now, of course, as life turns out, life's never quite like that anyway, is there? But, but I wanted to do something else. And then I had that, you know, that background of those stories from when I was younger. And, and I think that's how that came together. Absolutely sure that's how that came together. So another relocation, slightly further afield to Australia, but at least the language is the same. So there's probably some kind of uh, pros and cons with that relocation. But I guess one of the main pros is that you've done it before and as had your family. So what did you learn the first time round that made that sort of second time round um, you know, hopefully easier? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it, it probably should have done. And there, I'm sure there was a bunch of things that we um, that we'd learned. And there were definitely some, you know, like what the process is like. Um, realizing that the first few months that you're there that you're you're, you're going to be slightly at sea and it, it takes you a while to sort of make connections and and feel comfortable in a new place all of that but but we we didn't learn enough I don't think um when we went to Australia we I think the way that we were looking at it certainly looking at it as a family was you know you're moving to Australia English is the language you know we've been out there and it, it it's it's difficult not to be impressed by a city like Sydney when you go out to, to visit you know it, it looks beautiful and the sun's out and it was great but what we hadn't factored in was just how far away Australia was I mean it was a complete change of of um of everything you know you, you whilst you were remote from your family when you were on, in mainland Europe you could go home you know you'd be you could be back in a few hours if you flew. In Australia, that wasn't the case at all. I mean, it's just a long, long way away. But the time difference is between nine and 12 hours, depending on what the time of year is. And so, and you go there and you, and you suddenly realise that you just don't know anyone. I mean, it really is. Um, it really is quite a confronting move, that one. Or that was quite a confronting move. And again, much, much less so for me because I had... Uh, the office to go into and there was an awful lot to do it was a, it was a really interesting time in the Australian insurance market and for Royal and Sun Alliance Australia too which was um, about to go through some big big changes but for my family you know my kids were older um, and talking to my son you know now years later you know, he was of the age when we moved, when your, you know, friendships with your, with your mates is beginning to be much more important than your relationship with your parents. And then so suddenly he's transported to this place where, um, you know, he doesn't know anyone and, um, 
and it, it took him a, a while to find his feet. So I think for the family, that was a much, much more difficult move for that reason. And I think we, you know, if I was going to give anyone else advice about doing that, what, what we did is we moved out of, uh, we moved out of Sydney a bit. We were looking for a co-educational school for the children and somewhere um, that we felt was right for them. But what we should have done actually is stick far more to the places where there were more expatriates or more new um, new immigrants, I suppose, where, where you're, you're, you're gonna find people who are uh, in the same boat that you are, which is important when you first move. Um, so, so that was, yeah. Yeah, we didn't learn as much as we should have done. Let's put it that way. It's all right, because you still had a couple more tries at this. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah, in, in different ways. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So you were in Australia for a considerable amount of time um, between by the time you left Sun Alliance and, and joined the uh, new organisation. Yeah, about 15 years. Yeah, just over 15 years. In fact, um, you know, the family it was slightly longer because um they they then didn't go on to vietnam uh later so yeah 15 between 15 and 17 years yeah long time yeah and i've heard you talk about um this business that you'd come into that you were coming into to essentially i think turn around and um turn it into something that was a more sellable business is that a fair description um, well, yeah, actually, in, in both. So, so Royal and Sun Alliance, um, when I was transferred there by Royal and Sun Alliance, it was just at the time when um, there was, you know, the realisation was, was dawning, which is why I was asked to, to go there, I think, that their long-tail um, underwriting, uh, which had been booked as profitable, during the decade before was in fact significantly under-reserved. And so the results went from, from being positive to being extremely negative overnight. And it, it, was, it was kind of a, it, it was a really interesting moment because of course, if, if, you, if you think about it, the existing structure, the existing team, um, were pretty confident and they'd all been in their roles for, for a long period of time, apart from the new um, CEO who'd just been put in there. So they were confident and proud of what a great job that they'd done. And then all of a sudden it, it all fell apart. And of course it, it was, um, yeah, you, you go through that really interesting transformation where people who think everything that they've done has been great you know, it, it turns out that it, it hasn't. And so you get that kind of denial and resistance to change. And then, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, the wave of, um, of poor results then washes over it. And then you've got to sort it out and, and try and, and restructure it and get it, get it back on the right footing. So I was, again, fortunate that that was happening as I arrived. And that gave, I mean, just gave a, you know, really strong mandate for change. Um, but you've you've got to work, you've got to work with people to make that change, um, which is what happened. And I was extremely, again, really lucky. The see the new CEO out there was an extremely bright, bright guy, 
um, and there were some other really great people in the team and we we had to restructure it and, and get it back on track which we which we did over the next kind of two to three years um, and it 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 became uh, very profitable um, as that turned around and that again you know worked into this whole business of, of floating of the company floating off uh, onto the local stock exchange in Australia away from the Royal and Sun Alliance group so lots of things kind of came together um, and it gave it gave me an extremely interesting job to do um, and it it worked you know again the market the market turned I was in the right place at the right time when the market turned now from there it was then the creation of the new insurance company which was yeah which is a, a different a completely different task but that was a um, it was an old reinsurance company and it had gone into runoff at the end of the um, 1990s, beginning of the 2000s. Um, that runoff had gone well, so they had surplus capital, but because of all the changes in regulation, um, the regulator there wouldn't let them take any capital out of that reinsurer. But what we could do is turn that reinsurance company into an insurance company and use that capital to create a new insurer because that was still under the same regulation. So that, that was what that, um, that, that task was about. And then eventually, 10 years later, we then, we then sold it. So quite often as we go through our journeys, you know, as individuals in, in the insurance sector, we, we're going through, we're progressing, and, and as you sort of achieve something, then the next day you're working on something else. Mm. I'm really intrigued with this kind of journey you went through in that particular organization because you essentially were sort of working incredibly hard to get this business where it needed to be and then sold. So almost overnight, you went from accomplishing the goal that everybody had been working towards for so long to waking up the next day and I don't know, maybe thinking, what, what do I do today? Um. Yeah, I, I, actually, that, that's true. Um, that's true, but it, I, I guess there's kind of the run up to it and then there's how you feel afterwards, isn't there? There was absolutely no doubt in my mind that it was the right thing to do to sell it. Um, we, we had the right buyer uh, or buyers, actually, because it was Munich Re and, and a company called Steadfast who was the largest broker in uh, in Australia and you you know one, one of the lessons that I got from the creation of that company and the running it for 10 years and, and by the way I mean just to make it even more complicated the entity itself was listed so you know this was a business where um, your every move was disclosed so if you made a loss it was it was public and you, you you know you had shareholders and all the rest of it that, that went with it and, and really what it taught me is you you cannot really make a small insurer um, make money you you've got to get scale and that is an incredibly difficult thing when the market is going the other way so, so you're expanding into a softening market rather than capitalizing on on a um on a hardening market. So to find 
um, or, or to have the, the two buyers that we did, one of which was the largest reinsurer in the world, I think at the time, and the other lar the largest broker meant that the team themselves would all get roles with the new um, the new owners. It was kind of culmination of um, of all the work that had been put into it, and it meant that and it it, it meant that the shareholders got a, a really good return um, on the deal based on the sale. So it was absolutely the right thing to do. But as you go through that process, and as I say, um, Caledon was listed. So when you when you receive an um, an offer, if that offer is backed up, then then you you know it has to be disclosed. Um, the the board has to say whether they recommend that um, that offer to the shareholders or not. And the way that that offer had been framed was as a um, um, it was going to be a, a court approved deal and, and it was done that way so that you don't get, you know, 5% of the shareholders holding out for, for um, you know, a larger amount of money at the end of it. So in other words, it, it's done on the basis that the court decides that the, um, the offer by the buyers is in the best interests of the shareholders collectively. So that the shareholders vote on the deal and then it's then endorsed by the court. So, so that's quite a long process. Um, and you've got to get through, you've got to get an independent experts report that you, know, you then send to the shareholders and they, they have to vote on it. Um, and then you know, the, the, the court, the judge also has to approve it. And as you're going through this process, you, you, you've always got something which, which is called the, um, or, or certainly we did and a lot of deals do, have something called the material adverse change clause, which is the MAC clause. So in other words, if during the process an event happens that could reduce the value of the, the company by more than a certain amount, then the, the deal stops. So when you've got all of those uncertainties to manage and you have to keep the company going and functioning because of course it you know it has to keep doing what it's doing in order to to fulfill the deal then you're working kind of night and day to get that deal done and you're and i was absolutely convinced it was the right thing to do and so um there's no time in the run-up to the deal to really think about what you're going to do next or at least that certainly that was my experience um, and I, I, I can still remember because I went to the, um, you know, to the High Court of New South Wales, where you know we were one of the um, items of the day where they confirmed that um, that the deal should go ahead. And, and I know that day that there was a, there was a um, there'd been a. Um, a weather forecast. I'm sure it, it was. It was saying that there was a chance of a hailstorm that day in Sydney, and of course, you know, on the very day that the deal gets finalised, the last thing that you would want is for there to be some catastrophe event that meant, you know, the whole thing falls over at the last minute. So I just I can remember sitting in the um, uh, in the court waiting for it to sort of come through and just being so massively relieved that we've got it done at, um, at the end of it. And I think that that feeling 
um, that feeling kind of stayed in place for, for a day or two. But, but you're right. I've always, I've often found this, if you're completely consumed with something and you're working towards it, once it's done, then something that's been occupying you, you know, 24 hours a day for the last so many months is not there anymore and you miss it. It's, it's a real weird feeling. Um, so yeah, that, that was, it's not, I, I've never looked back and regretted that. I think it was absolutely the right thing to do. And it was great that it was a success. But you do suddenly think, well, everything that I've been doing to date is now done. What, what on earth do I do now? That was the, um, yeah, that, that, I certainly had that feeling, yeah. So what did happen after that one? Um, well, all I knew was that I didn't, I, I knew I didn't want to carry on with the, with the new owners. I, to me, I'd, I'd done what I needed to do there and I, did, I didn't want to stay on. Um, I, I spoke to a, a few people that I know around the market some, and most of the advice was not to do anything, you know, just to sort of don't do anything, let that whole kind of feeling of, well, what do I do next? Just, just let that dissipate over time and it will become clear what you want to do next. And I think that was, that was good advice. I'm not sure I took it. Um, I probably should have spent more time just doing nothing. Um, but we went, we went on a, we went on a holiday at the end of it. So it was, we got one of these round the world tickets that you could get at the time. And Tracy and I just went, went off and we've got this brilliant deal. Whereas provided you continue to go around the world in a certain direction, you could, you could break your journey as many times as you want. So we, we kind of went around the world and came back to Australia. And, and I guess during that time, there was so much to, you know, get involved with the holiday. I didn't think about it too much, but, but almost as soon as I, before I'd got back, somebody had contacted me and asked me whether I'd do some consulting for them. And so I think rather than face up to working out what I really wanted to do, I just did that, <laughs> which was terrible, really. Um, but it, it was kind of in the space that I was thinking of. So I was, what I was thinking was I wanted to get involved in, in a different area of insurance, you know, a more, you know, something I hadn't done before, something that was completely different. And this, this kind of fitted that bill. So I, I went off and did that. And then that, that contract then led to another one and another one. And, and then going off to Vietnam, actually, which was the next kind of big geographic move. Vietnam, I am, um, you know, I've, I've been there. It's one of my favourite trips I've experienced. Um, and it's just such a, a beautiful but chaotic place is probably the way to describe it. And that's almost its charm is, is, is the kind of sense of humour of the um, view of health and safety and so on that you're going to experience there. So to be working in insurance, in, in Vietnam, what's that like? It was a it was a local company um, that I was doing some some work for, albeit with you know international shareholders. But it, it's a developing nation, isn't it? I think is is the right way to put it. Um, 
we dealt with, I had to deal with everything from um, power generation, you know, hydroelectric plants in the, um, in the mountains, uh, in more remote regions of, of Vietnam and large claims in those units as they were being built all the way through to, um, you know, house and shop insurance. Um, so, so the range was absolutely incredible. Um, and the environment, you know, here and in Australia and, and Europe, you know, you, you're used to develop laws and ways of doing things. When that doesn't exist, you, yeah, you have no idea what that, that does to the whole kind of commercial life and the way that money um, moves around and what have you. That, that's, that's an incredible experience, I have to say. Is there much appetite for insurance? Um, no, in reality, no. I, I think that's one of the things that um, there's a real reliance on, on family um, to, to get you through things. I think there's a distrust. Um, and look, this, this may not be, you know, this may just be a, a factor in, in a developing country, but I think there's a bit of a suspicion and a distrust of, of financial companies too. Um, and a feeling that people would rather look after it themselves. So, you know, the biggest classes really were, you would get international companies that were setting up there and, and obviously they wanted, they wanted insurance. You would get things that were mandated by the government that had to be insured. And things like the power stations, for example, you know, obviously the, um, the companies who'd been bought in to do the contracting and supply the um, the equipment and what have you would demand that there was insurance that went with it. Uh, we even did a bit of aviation insurance. I mean, you know, you name it, which again had to be insured. But beyond that, there wasn't the habit um, or the expectation, uh, expectation to, to insure. And that led to, and you know, car insurance, motor insurance was one of my favorites with this. That if someone had paid a premium and they wanted to make sure that they got back at least the premium, if not more, every year. Um, and the way that motor insurance was sold in it, you know, in the most part was through a sort of local agent come salesman. Um, and we used to get this thing where the policyholders would get a call from that local salesman saying, look, you're coming up for renewal. I hope you're going to renew with me. Have you had a look at your car and see if there's any chips? Because if, you know, if, if you do, I can get it resprayed for you. And it was just such a challenge to sort of work through that because, of course, the policyholder thought that was great. You know, they just put their car in. And, and then you would find that the person selling the motor policy um, or often their, their boss or whoever would, would then own the garage that would respray the car. I mean, it was just, and, and trying to uh, unpick all that and make, you know, make a return out of it was just um, so complex, um, yeah. Eventually you found your way to the Lloyds market and um, I listened to a podcast um, you'd done on your career 
and I love the way you described Lloyd's. You you called it Disneyland for anyone that works in insurance. Um, and I, I think that's brilliant. I've used that a couple of times since actually. So so this was your opportunity to go go to Disneyland for all the experiences you had, all the places you'd worked, Lloyd's hadn't yet got on your list. No, so I I from Australia, I mean certainly when we had when we were building the insurance company you know, before selling it, then I'd come back once a year and uh, when we were placing the reinsurance program or most years when we were placing the reinsurance program and, and a proportion of that, particularly the cat would be at, at you know, at Lloyd's. And we were also, um, we were also um, Lloyd's cover holders for a part of the business that we had too. So I'd come back and done that. and. At, yeah, I think the whole of the city of London is insurance Disneyland, really. I mean, it's just when, when you work in countries where insurance is not that well known or it's, it's a small part of the overall, you, you have no idea when you come back here and everyone you meet um, and everyone in that kind of square mile seems to work in insurance, don't they? And, it, and, and you've got... And when I came back, and it, it fulfilled all of this, actually, when I was involved in Lloyd's, you know, you, there are so many different aspects of what can be placed and um, what's covered, um, how you protect it in terms of reinsurance, you know, the provision of funds at Lloyd's, um, protecting the um, funds at Lloyd's, all of those sorts of things, of which there is you know, there are experts in just about everything in, in the London market. It really is. Yeah, it's, it's Disneyland for insurance people. Definitely. And how, uh, how did you transition to that? So as much as you'd moved around different locations, this was really for you by this stage, we've spent so many years in other countries, a relocation in its own right. So how was that move? I mean, I, to be honest, I mean, that was also the appeal, you know. Um, I'd gone to do some work in Malaysia or six months after I'd finished my contract in, in Vietnam. And then I came back to Sydney afterward, after that. And, and I used to travel back to Sydney anyway, because you know it was kind of part of the contract. You, you'd come back a number of different times. And beautiful as Sydney is, and it, and it really is just, you know, a lovely city. Um, one, it seems a long way away from everywhere else. And, and secondly, after, you know, the kind of uh, tumult of, of Vietnam, you know, Saigon and, and uh, Malaysia and all of those people, it just seemed so quiet. Um, and so I didn't, and it, and it was just like going back to ordinary, whereas um, London was a new adventure all over again for all the reasons that you've said, you know, it was 20, 25 years since I, um, since I worked there. Um, and I thought, if, if I wanted to find some more interesting things to do, then London seemed to be the right, the right place to do it. So I just kind of got on a plane and came back and then, you know, called around a few people and saw what there was to do and whether the experiences that I'd had in the period that I'd been overseas were going to be of, of interest to anyone. And again, I think I was just, it was just lucky, really. Somebody would, um, the Vibe business was looking for someone to help them with um, an MGA business that they'd set up um, and to do some consulting. So I, I went in 
I went in to do that. And then they asked me to help them raise capital for future underwriting years. And from that, um, become the chief operating officer. And beyond that, then to, to, to run it when unfortunately we had to put the, um, you know, the syndicate into runoff and, and look for a, uh, a sales solution for it. So yeah, it was, it was, it was quite easy coming back actually, I have to say that was, it was, it was quite an easy transition. And this most recent transition is going from one project, 100 miles an hour, foot on the pedal nonstop, to finding a combination of, uh, of work, life, balance, opportunities. What's been your kind of thought process and how has that been as a journey? It's something that I've had to sort of work at more than I thought that I would. Um, I, I've got a, uh, this friend of mine who's who's kind of brilliant at these things he um he's older than i am but he he said when he when he got to 60 he decided that he was going to he, he was going to build himself a plan for his next decade and he was telling me about this because he just got to 70 and he was rebuilding his plan for his next decade and and he kind of the way that he um did this is to look at it in terms of he wanted four pillars that that was going to be his kind of plan and one of those was um, professional but another was fitness another was travel and the other was social and family that was the, those were the four things for him uh, and what he did is he he set himself some priorities for each one of the pillars and really what he, the basis of his is that it was moving he was moving from, in order to achieve the other three pillars, the non-professional ones, he needed more time on that than he'd had in his working life up until that point, which meant that the professional pillar had to adapt downwards so that he could achieve the other things that he wanted to achieve in the, in the 10 year time. And he, he worked you know, this plan and was really successful in doing it. Now, I am too disorganized to sort of set that out in a, in a written plan, but that kind of resonated with me. You know, you, to me, I, I wanted to continue to work and contribute. And, and I, I love the insurance industry, I really do. I mean, I, I couldn't kind of recommend it highly enough. I couldn't be more grateful for everything that's given me. So I want to be involved in that and interested in it. But there are also other things that I would like to achieve and, and give back in the next, Kind of 10 years so so that's what the transition is about for me but moving from an all-in you know focused project with the sale of the business and the you know the, the transition through to runoff and then the sale of the business to when you're working much less that that is that is can be difficult because if you're if you're not used to thinking about what it is that you're going to do next because you're always busy, that, that's, a, that's a change, isn't it? And all change takes some time to sort of work their way through. And, and, um, and that's the process I'm on at the moment. And how are you finding independent roles? So um, when you're in the business, you're making the decisions, you're steering the ship. And when you're independent, you are... You're reviewing and maybe asking questions, but it's no longer your choice or decision on, on how things are really 
operating. So how have you found um, adapting to that kind of seat at the table? It, it, look, in, in a positive way, being an independent, being an independent director, uh, a non-executive director, it does give you the uh, the distance, you know, the, the space to look at the business in a different way, you know, to take a step back from it, um, which I think is positive. In other words, that that makes some of the issues that a business faces you know, more interesting and you've got more time for reflection and thinking that through than you have when you're doing it on a day-to-day -day basis. The, the more challenging bit is that if you think you've got the right answer, it's not for you to implement it. And it may, you know, it, it may not be a fit with what the rest of the, the business wants to do. So that, that bit is, is more challenging. Um, but it, it, it also does fit um, very much with something that I kind of got, have got a lot out of over the last few, certainly the last decade, I think, is that you do get the opportunity to work with um, executives and people in the business where you're not, you, you know, your relationship is not necessarily you're their, you're their boss. You're, you, can, you can be a sounding board. You can um, talk people through what, what they want to do and how they want to achieve it. And you can give them feedback about how they're coming across in meetings and when they're approaching things, which is more difficult, I think, when you're an executive. And I enjoy, I enjoy that part of it. Um, and I, I hope that I've got something, um, you know, to offer and to assist with things like that. Because I know, you know, when, in, when doing some of the roles that, that I've done, and certainly, you know, being a CEO of the, of the listed entity, it can be a very lonely place to, to, to be running a business because, and having someone that you can, um, turn to who is involved in the business but is not an executive in the business I think is you know can help with that with that process and I, I enjoy doing that if um, if it's making a difference and it helps the people you know do the best they can in the job that they can. That's great and thank you so much for sharing all of that because I think relocation is so, something that people are giving the advice of you know if you can do uh, an international in particular um, so comment somewhere that's always going to be helpful for you in your career progression, your CV, but those opportunities aren't common. So it's really hard to kind of find um, uh, and hear from people about their experiences doing those. So thank you so much for sharing that. We always end these podcasts with a piece of advice. So if you were to share um, either your favourite or your most common advice that you give out to people as they advance in their careers, what, what would you really recommend to people working in insurance? Uh, yeah, um, I, I knew you were going to ask me that, but this, whether I'm properly prepared for it or not is a different matter, isn't it? Look, um, I think, actually, the, the strongest piece that I would give is make up your mind how much you want from a career. You know, what, what do you want to get from it? So in other words, I... I what I've seen is that reconnecting with people that I was at school with when I was a kid, when I've come back, who still live in the same part of London that I grew up in. And they've stayed connected to their local areas and people and families and what have you, and they've had happy and fulfilling lives. That wasn't necessarily 
that wasn't what I wanted to do. So in other words, I think make a choice about how important your career is to you. If you want to really go as far as you can, you have to sacrifice other parts of what you do. And so therefore make a conscious decision about that. You know, don't, don't regret it. Make a conscious decision about what you want from your career and then, and then go for it. I think that would be my advice, number one. So in other words, if, you, if, you're, if you're happy not having an international career and, and, you, you know, and really your main passion is something outside of work, then, then do that, that that's, that's fine. But if you want to, um, if, if you want a career and it's gonna be a main part of what you do, then you're probably gonna to have to make sacrifices in order to make it work. And just, ex you have to accept that, come to terms with that. Um, recognize that you can't control the world around you. Um, it will bring opportunities towards you. It's a little bit like what we were talking about before. If you know what it is that you want broadly, then over time, the opportunities will come and you, come to you, won't they? And it's then what you do to, um, to make them work. And I think the last thing would be, you know, determine what your risk appetite, it's slightly linked to the first one, but determine what your risk appetite is. Um, when you take international secondments or you go on the international route, you're leaving behind the country and the market that you are known in uh, and have grown up in it, it work out whether you think that risk is for you and if it is go for it because i i couldn't recommend it i couldn't re recommend it highly enough i don't think T to me it's a lot of people think in you know so there's always a, a, a perception by people outside the industry that in insurance can be boring well, it's absolutely, you know, it is absolutely not. It, it, it's something that can take you around the world into all sorts of situations and environments that you will not otherwise get into. Um, and so I, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Why wouldn't you do that if you get the opportunity? That would be my, um, that would be my philosophy anyway. And you've certainly done that. So um, I look forward to hearing more stories over time as we uh, meet again. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you for your time.